Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger on this episode of Jill on Money. We're talking fire. It is definitely very, very hard to walk away from that status quo path, but I absolutely do not regret it. And I don't know what I was so afraid of. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. We are presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. For those of you who have been listening for a while, you know that I'm a little bit obsessed with the FIRE movement, financial independence, retire early. So we've had a couple of episodes that have been devoted to this. I love this couple because it was the first time I had live in studio two folks, married couple who had done it. Christy Shen and Bryce Lung, who wrote a book called Quit Like a Millionaire, No Gimmicks, Luck or Trust Fund Required. So here is our interview with Christy and Bryce. You're listening to Jill on Money with Jill Schlesinger. Okay, so here we go. We start the program with a very easy question. Uh The question is, Bryce, what is the best financial or career decision you've ever made? Best financial decision I ever made? I think it was to not buy that overpriced house. So, I mean, oh, I love that. We started going into, like, we started this whole journey just like everybody else. We were trying to work, save up money, and then do the adult thing and then buy a, an overpriced house, going into a lot of debt and this kind of stuff. And I know like, we're in New York right now. So, whatever we were feeling back in our home uh, town of Toronto, it's like, it's even more intense here, right? Where everything. Every apartment costs like a million dollars and this kind of stuff. So the pressure that we ha- that we felt on that was intense because it felt like every time we ended up making progress towards our down payment fund, the house prices would just run away from us. So we would save like a hundred thousand dollars, and the houses would have gone up a hundred thousand mm. dollars. And we just felt like it was felt like it was a rigged game. Hold on a second. Let's just go back in time, Christy. First of all, let's just talk about your journey. You have a first generation mindset, which is really instructive for how you were able to kind of go through this process in a lot of ways and how you've managed it. So can you talk a little bit about, take us to your roots, your life and your journey? Sure. Um, So I wrote this book and it kind of follows my journey um, from living in rural China and then later on immigrating to the West. Um, And it's split into three parts where I talk about poverty and then middle class and then finally becoming rich. Um, And the reason why I did that is because I want to show people that you don't have to be privileged to become financially independent. Which is actually one of the criticisms that you've encountered from the fire movement. Oh, it's a bunch of bro-y dudes in the Bay Area, right? Yeah, you're all like rich people and that's how you became a FI. Um, The thing is, for me, uh, growing up in China with my family, at one point we were actually living on 44 cents a day you know people talk about how the scarcity mindset is harmful and if you grew up like poor you're never going to be able to get out of that and you know you need to have the abundance mindset in order to become rich uh but for me it was actually quite the opposite i actually credit the scarcity mindset which i talk about in the book quit like a millionaire in terms of how it helped me get here how old were you when you moved here uh so i was eight years old did not speak a word of English. Nope. Did not speak a word of English. I was amazed by everything. I was amazed by a toilet. I was actually scared of it because I didn't know how to use it. I was like, "Do I? am I going to get sucked into it? I don't know how it works. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea how it works. I was amazed by just the fact that there's supermarkets that you can just go in and there's food everywhere. I was amazed by a can of Coke because um, my dad gave me a can of Coke for the first time. This is this is considered like rich people drink in uh, rural China because it's, it's it's considered something that, you know, it would cost you like a whole day's wages to buy a can of Coke. So um, when my dad gave me a can of Coke and I opened it up and I took a sip, like my mind was blown. Like I had a massive nosebleed because it was <laughs> seriously the best thing I've ever tasted in my life. 
This this book brought to you by Coca Cola. Yes, exactly. yes, exactly. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I, I, did I say that I hate Pepsi? Subliminal message. Exactly. Yes, Coca Cola. So when when you came here, did you come as a family, or what, did you come? Were there different? Was there different timing? Yeah. So there's a bit of background with how we actually immigrated. Uh, so originally, um, my dad actually came first. So uh, when we were living in China at one point, because of the Cultural Revolution, like my dad had been sent to, like before I was born, he was sent to like a a labor camp for 10 years, right? And the only reason he was able to get out of it, like he worked in a factory, and the only reason he was able to get out of it was because Chairman Mao died and they reinstated university exams. So my dad was able to get out, being able to be educated mm. and finally get um, university education and be able to like go to the West in order to get his family out. And initially it was just, the plan was just for my dad to go train for like two years, take the knowledge from the West back to China. And then me and my mom would have to stay almost as like de facto hostages so that he would come back, right? He's oh, not allowed to just immigrate. Right, right. Yeah. And then another crazy incident happened, which was the um, Tiananmen Square massacre. Right. And that was actually the incident that caused a lot of students who immigrated, and not just to Canada, but to the States and all over the world, to actually not return to China and bring their families abroad. Because, you know, it basically shows that the government can kill you at any point. Oh, my God. So, okay. Okay, so you come here, you yeah. drink your can of Coke. What's your dad doing? And is your mom working also? Um, so my dad at the time is um, working on getting his PhD, so he's a student. Uh, my mom couldn't speak English. She doesn't have a high school education, which is another result of the Cultural Revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, so she worked mostly in restaurants. So initially, the first couple of years was very hard because we were trying to send money back home as well, like to try to support our family. So let's go to you, Bryce. What's your upbringing? How do you come to this world? Not nearly as intense as uh, as Christie's. I know you got no street cred, dude. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my my parents are from Hong Kong, and because they were uh, Hong Kong, and at the time was under British rule, we mm-hmm. were British subjects, I guess. My dad has like I, he showed me one of his old like you know British subject passports, and I remember at the time Hong Kong was quite annoyed with the British for doing all that colonialization thing, and then we saw what was going on in communist China, and we're like, you know what, this is okay, this right? Is fine. I, you know what, we like tea. Tea's <laughs> good. Tea's fine. Fantastic. I mean, like, yay. British people. <laughs> All right. So your parents come over here and they settle also in Canada? Yeah, yeah. They were, um, we were, uh, we settled in Toronto. And the, you know, I grew up in a middle class background. She grew up in a, from a poverty kind of thing. And what's interesting is that this combination is actually quite common in the fire space. Really? Is, yeah. Because the scarcity mindset that she alluded to, that's the thing that causes Christy to be hyper vigilant how much you spend, then, mm-hmm. right? So she's the one that is constantly like, uh, okay, this is too much. This like, how much are we spending and constantly tracking it all? Because in a scarcity mindset, money becomes the most important thing to you, and as a result of that, you become very hyper vigilant about spending. It's also because you don't think that anyone's going to come save you if anything goes wrong, right? Mm-hmm. It's like you have to take care of yourself because you know I've always been brought up thinking that the government is not going to help me and that bad things could always happen and there's nothing you can do about it. So, how did you guys meet? In uh, in college, we've been married for nine years and together for sixteen years. Wow! Yeah, so and every day is just better than the next. <laughs> oh my God! You've trained him so well. I have totally <laughs> brainwashed him. Yeah. All right. So you get out of college. What is the job that you get when you come out? The one I got initially in in the beginning, nobody has any experience, so it's very difficult to get a job. And then everything is on your resume is like, oh, I worked at McDonald's or like I waited tables, and there's nothing related to what you actually want to do. So my first internship was testing Mm because they wouldn't trust me with anything important. So Mm -hmm. it really is like, here's code that somebody else wrote. 
uh, you just need to like click through the page and make sure everything is okay. Okay. So you're you're expected to kind of go from testing eventually to become a software engineer, and it it takes a while to get there. No, I didn't have any experience coding, and I really wanted to actually code, but nobody would let me because they wouldn't trust me with it. Um, it was actually one interview. I think it was during my third internship that I had been applying for a job coding and they actually thought I wanted the testing job because there was they had mixed up the actual job description and then during the interview they were asking me all these testing questions I was like oh no am I interviewing for the wrong job but then at the end of it I was really enthusiastic I was like I'm so happy you gave me this opportunity like I I can work overtime I can do anything you need me to do I'm there like just bring it on and then because of my enthusiasm they actually decided to give me the the coding Coding job yeah yeah so it it was completely mind-blowing. When you start to get the sense of like, we want to save for a house, how much are you making as combined income about? We made like 60000 because mm-hmm. we just got out of yeah. university. We weren't working that long. Uh, but then eventually as we got promotions, when we were actually trying to buy the house, we had a combined after-tax salary of approximately like $120,000. Okay. So this is when you're like, oh, God, I, I got to buy yeah. a house. Right. I yeah, got like, ten grand a month coming you know, in. Everybody else is doing it. Right. You're oh, going to miss out if you right. don't, right? Tell me how, how did you come to learn about the FIRE movement? Or even, I don't even know if you found it as a movement or if you just sort of adopted adopted this yourselves uh at the time it was not a movement. yeah it wasn't right no. that's it's a little before that yeah right? that was like i think around 2011 2012 we mm-hmm. were reading blogs we mostly found it through like it started with pete uh mr money mustache and then we found jl collins yeah mad scientist you know the, right. the usual suspects right and um so i think it, it was actually a big relief for me because I thought that buying a house was the only way out and that was the only way to build your equity and like my parents were pressuring me to buy a house. See, that's the thing that really surprised me because I'm like, my mom who w- used to like hit me for losing uh, keys that cost $30 was like, you need to spend a million dollars buying a house. That's totally normal because it's always going to go yeah. up. And I'm like, mom, this is the exact opposite of everything you've ever taught me. Shameless plug for my own book, The Dumb oh. Things Smart People Do With Their Money. Chapter four is you buy a house when you should rent. And I say that the problem really does occur because there's a generation of people that did benefit Mm -hmm. from buying a house, but that's just dopey good luck timing. Right, right. And they have no way to really assess what it means today Mm -hmm. to make that decision. But you guys came to it yourselves. Now talk about like what were the things you did to actually quit like a millionaire? Did you have a game plan or how did it start? But around 2011, 2012, we had saved up about half a million dollars. And wait, a minute, wait, like, a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. So you're taking home 120. So whatever, you're making like 160 pre-tax-ish? Yep, something like Ish, that. yeah. Right? Okay, so how did you save a half a million dollars so fast? Um, part of it was by that time we had been working almost seven years. Mm-hmm. And then we had gotten about two promotions since then, right? So, Got it. There's like salary increases as we went. And we weren't really increasing our lifestyle because we were still living basically like like college grads right out of school because we were like we didn't have a car. We were uh, right. We were just renting like a like the top floor of a, of a townhouse. But it wasn't like a piece of crap. You didn't feel like, oh, I'm living. You're not like, oh, God. No, we, we avoided basements because I did that as a student and I got really bad allergies as a result of that. So I didn't want to do that. It was the top floor of a townhouse. And then the landlord lived in the the bottom floor it was like 25 minute subway ride from downtown whereas all my friends were renting like the fancy condos downtown so uh-huh. their rent was at least 1500 right but our rent was 850 all right so yeah. i just want to go back so here we are you're like think i got a half a million dollars i'm ready to buy a house you basically come up with this kind of i think interesting form it's your formula this rule of 150 you right. there's no one else has this can you right. explain your rule of 150 
Yeah. So um, one of the things that happens when you try to buy a house is like when you go to the bank to get a mortgage, they push you on these mortgage calculators, right? Just put it into the mortgage calculator and look, voila, it, your mortgage is the same as your rent. Of course, it makes sense to buy a house. Otherwise, you're going to lose money to rent. But the thing is, they fail to tell you that there's all these extra costs that come with home ownership, right? Yes, there like, are. Yeah, you've mm-hmm. got to pay for them. You've got to pay for the property taxes. You got to pay for insurance, real estate commissions, real estate commissions, maintenance, uh, maintenance yeah. all that these things, is right? Killer. Yeah, and that's why, like, when we do the math within the, in the book, we actually break everything down. And when you add it up at the end of the day, it adds fifty percent on top of the mortgage to your costs, right? If you were running a business and you just ignored fifty percent of your expenses you're in big trouble. Mm-hmm. But that's what happens a lot of the times when real estate agents or banks try to sell you a house. Because once you sign on the dotted line, they get their commission, they Move get on. their interest, and like you're stuck with the house. That's not their problem. So you have this half million dollars, and now do you actually put like down on paper a plan? Like, okay, wait, we could do this. Or does it happen more organically? I was aware of the fire movement, and I was trying to figure out how, ways to invest as well. When I broke down the math and I kind of said, and I kind of presented her with the choice here, it was like, okay, we could go ahead and buy that house and get into enough debt to last us for 25 years and then maybe get back to zero and when we're old and gray or whatever. Or based on our current savings rate, which was at the time it was on, we were saving almost like, I think slightly over a hundred grand a year. Yeah. I could project. I was like, okay, we could do that or we become a millionaire and retire in three years. So 25 years of debt or three years to freedom. And then she kind of went. I went. Your math is wrong. Let me check that. Over. <laughs> like, this Wait, let me let like, the brains suspicious. of this operation <laughs> yeah. check this. Okay, so now you check the math, and you're like, okay, million dollars. Right, but that could be kind of yeah. cool, right? I still didn't really believe it because part of me was like, okay, uh, we have to invest and we have to like put all this money in instead of putting it in, into the house. Then my scarcity mindset kicks in. Mm-hmm. This is when it's a good idea to actually learn from middle class and wealthy as well, right? Mm-hmm. Because at this point, the scarcity mindset ends up turning into like this the hoarding mindset, and it's not helpful, right? So at this time, I had a lot of fear and I was worried about the math. I'm glad that I actually got over that fear. And part of that was because we already learned from investing back in 2008 that we got out of it without losing money. That kind of gave me the assurance that, okay, this is going to be okay. Everything is going to be fine. Let's do this. And then we actually became financially independent a lot faster than I thought it was going to take. So it took us um, three years from that point. Uh, So after nine years of career of uh, working, we ended up um, being financially independent at 31 and 32. Okay. So you're 31, 32. You got a million bucks. Mm -hmm. In retirement and non-retirement funds yeah. are mostly a little bit Combination. of MX. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so a million bucks, when I think, when I do that quick back of the envelope math in the geeky way that I do, um, I, I say, oh, well, you know, it can generate X amount of dollars. You're not going to pull money out of the retirement account, right? You're going to let that go. Are you pulling money out of your non-retirement assets right now to live? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, uh, there's this misnomer of like, don't touch the retirement part, and then uh, and then only pull off of the. You can treat the entire thing as like one giant portfolio, right? Because after you um, after you retire and your income drops, you can then melt down your four hundred one ks gradually and then and in a tax free way, right? So we're so it doesn't actually matter which account that the amount is from, but uh, yes, we are living off of that initial portfolio, and by combining it with other things like you know world travel, we're actually able to keep our expenses 
even lower than that. What we found is that after we retired, there's like a three prong strategy that we put together because we're engineers and we like to have backup. Love plans, that. Right? Um, so the first plan is that um, a lot of people say like, what if you have to sell your assets during a downturn? The thing is, uh, they don't realize that there's also yield coming from the portfolio in which yeah. you don't have to actually sell any of the underlying assets, right? So if our portfolio, which is currently yielding about 3.5%, $35,000, if we were in Thailand, which we actually were just like three weeks ago in Bangkok, I found out that inflation is hardly present at all. And we were able to live really well getting massages almost every day for $25,000 a year for the two of us. Mm. So if you take that and you're taking the yield and then subtracting your um, living expenses, you're actually making $10,000 even if the market is crashing. So the right? corpus of the money you've saved continues to grow. Exactly. Right. right. Yeah, when, we that's left, the f- when we left uh, three years ago, we, we left with a million dollars. And then now, like right now, it's like sitting at like 1.3. So we're actually making money while also, traveling on retirement. Also, bull market. Thank also, you very also much. Bull we'll take that. that. Yeah. We'll so take, we'll take that. that. Yeah. And you wrote a book. You sold it. You made a few shekels, right? Uh, we're actually not using the money that we've earned in passion projects outside. So we what actually, are you doing with it? We're just putting it in a separate portfolio. So ah. that could be like for we've uh, given some money to family as gifts. We've done some oh donations. My God. So it's you just, guys are so good. We, part of, part g- of it is because like I feel like I don't actually need to inflate my lifestyle because I'm extremely happy the way I am right now. Yeah. So I it's like wonder- what like what am I going to am I going to go buy a car? No. What, what am I going to do with it? Like, do you, but do you still it. have a place in Toronto? Uh, What's your no. home base? Do you have a home base in the U.S.? No, no we don't. We're like homeless millionaires. Like we, I we, love we, this. <laughs> Mark, we, the, get the sequel. Homeless millionaire. Yeah. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> All of our worldly possessions are on two backpacks. Yeah, like, backpack this, is, right here. this is this is the backpack right here. Yeah. yeah. And uh, this so uh, one of these uh, one of on um, one of hers and then like there's a saddlebag and like she has a purse. So that's everything that we own in the entire world and we just carry it around with us. So, Shut up. So we have no Open that base. bag up right now. Well, oh, we don't have everything packed with not us. Everything yeah. in here, just my laptop right. Okay, now. but like what are you yeah. doing? You're in New York right now. Mm-hmm. And where are you staying? friends so we're staying at an airbnb okay yeah, yeah. We, we basically live on airbnbs and uh we go like back short-term to visit, rentals in this like every now we and then go back our to... family yeah all right so where's the families now uh so our families are still in toronto uh-huh uh so we usually visit them in the summer because after oh, you leave nice. you like never want to deal with snow again i'm a total <laughs> wimp now i'm like can't can't deal with snow at all our, our rule is i don't want to see another goddamn snowflake ever again for the rest of my life god all right okay here we go (laughs) this to me is a fascinating thing because you know you got your backpacks you got your worldly possessions you're like okay i'm fine and that's why a million dollars is great one of the things you guys write spending money is addictive because our brains reset our expectations and we no longer get the same amount of dopamine with repeated spending i believe this is called the hedonic treadmill oh yeah nice you like that nice you like nice work Explain that, what's happening when we spend and what's going on. Yeah, so this actually happened to me before, you know, we decided to invest and become FI, is that uh, it's something I I call the immigrant rebound effect, which is, you know, once you start making money and before a can of Coke was the most important thing ever, now you're like, I have money, I I need to treat myself. I've, you know, made it to the middle class. I need to show my status. So I started buying a lot of like luxury handbags and it got to the point where I didn't know why I was buying the bag because it was just like, I need another one. I need a green one. I need a red Mm -hmm. one. I need another one that matches this outfit. And then I think, around my fifth bag, I started realizing like going from the fourth bag to the fifth bag, I didn't have a lot of happiness. But when I bought the first one, I was extremely happy. I'm like, oh my God, I'm finally the owner of a luxury purse. And I think around this point, I started to realize, you know what? I think it's because 
how many bags am I going to have before I realize that it's not really giving me the same high, right? Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we were actually, um, like, I was trying to write a children's novel at the side. So it's like the writing and creating was making me more happy than the actual, you know, spending and just kind of hit, hitting that dopamine button in my brain. Right. And then at that point, I was like, you know what? Let's just stop. Like, we're I'm going to return. That. We're not going to do this anymore. You ebayed that crap. Yeah, yeah exactly. Got it, right? We're done. Okay. We're done. This is Jill on Money. Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger, certified financial planner, CBS News business analyst, and host of this, the Jill on Money podcast. I'm here to tell you about our sponsor, Marcus by Goldman Sachs. Marcus is part of a storied company that's been a leader in financial services for generations. Marcus offers simple, secure access to FDIC-insured savings products, including a high-yield online savings account that earns four times the national average. Marcus also offers certificates of deposit, including a no-penalty CD. Get inspired by your savings account and start saving today to help meet your financial goals tomorrow. You can money. Visit marcus.com forward slash save. National average data provided by Informa and accuracy cannot be guaranteed. Marcus Deposits products provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. And now we're going to learn how to quit like a millionaire with our guests, Christy and Bryce. When you think about the future, what do you think lies ahead? You know, you've done this now for a few years. I mean, are you guys going to have kids? Look at me. I'm like your mother. This is what it feels like <laughs> to have. This is probably this question your mother asked. My mom you. would be very happy for so, you to ask that question. So, I mean, now. I think that there are people who might be listening and say, like, this is awesome. You're 35 years old or whatever. This is amazing. But like, what if you want to have kids? How are you going to do this? Well, and I mean, do like, you think about it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, there's this misconception that oh, I'll find my stop when you have kids. And there's, there's a bit. I'm, I'm sure there's a, a lot of parents out there that'd be like, well, yeah. Mark just had a baby. Had and kids. and so, uh, you know, it's, it's not that all fun stops, but. Things change for but, sure. But uh, this is the great thing about traveling is when I'm sure you notice this when you're like staying in one place and like in one city, everyone around you is kind of like thinking the same way and kind of like like worrying about the same things and, and, and not thinking outside the box. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like people in New York are just like constantly just work, working, working, working and stress out all the time and this kind of stuff. When you travel, you meet all sorts of other groups of people that just have very alternative lifestyles that you never would have thought. So we discovered this group of um, this group called the World Schoolers. Yeah. And this was, I think, in our Airbnb in Tulu, Mexico. Yeah. And then they were just traveling. There was this mom that was traveling with their school-age kids. And it was during the school year. And we're like, oh, are you taking some time off of school? And this kind of stuff. I was like, no, no. They're, you know, we travel full time. And we just use the world as our classroom. And I was, I was like, like, what now? Yeah. So we interviewed the leaders. We reached out to the leaders of this movement and interviewed a bunch of them um, in, in the book. And we're just like, how does that work? And they, and they travel around the world full time, teach out of a curriculum, but then use the world as their as their classroom, like I said. Like when they're learning about the Vietnam War, they'll be like in Vietnam. Yeah, so let's go to Vietnam to study this, which, by the way, there I believe they call it the American American War. The American War. Traveler five. (laughs) (laughs) So they'll be like, so they'll be like, and here's, you know, here's the Hanoi Hilton that we talk about. Here's Mm -hmm. the tunnels. And here's this, hey, this is is John McCain's cell and this kind of stuff, right? Right. So they would teach and, and they would then use the regulations of their home state to like certify each like grade level and this kind of stuff so that so all the grade levels like count towards like their education this kind of stuff and uh and they do it in such a way that you can re-enter the school system at any time mm-hmm. so like at the end of like you know high school of the high school equivalent kind of thing they can apply to college and they can go into the regular oh, school that's system cool. right. so yeah. it's a really cool thing yeah we met a world schooler um we had a skype chat with her she's i think she wrote an article when she was 16 that went 
viral, and it was called How World Schooling Ruined My Life. But it was oh, like tongue-in-cheek, like ruined my life, right? Yeah. She would say things like, but I only have one pair of shoes. But, you know, I'm an entrepreneur now, and I'm not like, you know, the way that everybody thinks I should be. And mm-hmm. like, my parents must be horrible people. But she's actually one of the most precocious, precocious people yeah. I've ever met in my life. Um, she started a virtual assistant online business to earn money towards her own tuition. And now she goes to Queen's University. I think she's majoring in geography. Mm-hmm. And basically, ever since she's, she was 16, she learned how to make her own money. And she advanced faster than anybody else in her high school class. So it's like a lot of thinking outside the box that you end up learning as a result of traveling. Let's shift gears for a second, Bryce, because people uh, may have heard that there was like a smackdown fight between some older, established financial people and the FIRE movement. My thesis is anything that gets people to actually pay attention to their money is pretty awesome. To save money is pretty awesome. And to contemplate about what makes them happy in life is also pretty awesome. What was the pushback that came from the other old farts? There's this kind of, you know, they don't know how bad things can get and this kind of stuff. The thing is, the rules that they grew up in, in the 70s, when they when that generation was just starting to work, houses cost something like two or three times their annual salary. And this right. kind of stuff. So the equivalent of that is like you make $50,000 now, a house is only $150,000. And we know that's not true. So they're annoyed that we're doing this travel thing and early retirement thing because it didn't really work for them back then. That's not like that's not how they did it. But what they don't realize is that the rules have changed since then because houses are way more expensive now uh, as a percentage of our income than than it was for them. And for them, when they were first starting out, interest rates were at like 15 percent or something like that. And it's been on like a, a downward trajectory this entire time, which causes house prices to go up and up and up. And but, up. you know, Chrissy, I also think that there's this protestant work ethic of america that like like there's a strain of this like i'm not just not judgmental i just think that you know sometimes you could get bored and you actually bring this up that there is a little bit of a cautionary tale about the wall of fear Mm -hmm. you know obviously running out of money because that was another complaint oh they don't know how long they're gonna live Mm -hmm. i'm like oh yeah i'm sure that these kids because you're kids to us like (laughs) who are super smart don't quite understand longevity like of course you do But the two parts of this that were fascinating to me, you mentioned them, loss of community and loss of identity. That's the part I think that people can't imagine. Like, but if you're not working, then who are you? That's hard. So you mentioned these things as this is part of your fear that you needed to conquer. Absolutely. And I didn't love my job. So I thought that when I quit, I would be like, you know, dancing around the office, like banging my my boss's head like a bungo. It didn't really happen. Right. And what happened was like I gave my notice and I had a panic attack, like a minor one. Really? Yeah. Because I was like, what am I doing? Yes. A lot. No, (laughs) it was totally fine this time. But it it wasn't just... um, the work thing like my parents were also like what are you doing like this is a horrible idea right and so the entire time um i'm thinking like i've developed this identity for 10 years and all of a sudden i'm gonna give it up who am i now right Right? and that is definitely a fear that a lot of people have which keeps them from you know like the golden handcuffs and Mm -hmm. continuing going back to the job but the surprising thing i found is that my network of friends and my my group my support group has grown exponentially since we left Um, one of the things that ends up happening when you're working is that your brain is in lizard mode like it can't tap into the creative part of your brain Mm -hmm. and then you can't get out of your your bubble to like meet other people right so one of the things that 
ended up happening when we traveled is we met friends all over the world and being part of this fire community just adds additional support as well. Uh, it is definitely very, very hard to walk away from that status quo path right. when you don't have enough support. Like now that we're coming out from the other side, I absolutely do not regret it. And I don't know what I was so afraid of. It's just that ingrained thinking, you know, you've been doing this for so long. It's the devil that, you know, if you leave, then it's going to be much worse, but it's actually much, much better. You end up meeting so many friends that you wouldn't have met otherwise. And I would suspect that a lot of people who are adhering or at least adopting the fire movement, I think a lot of the people that I speak to, it's financial independence. It's not about Mm -hmm. retire early. It's like financial independence and opportunity and optionality. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't want to get stuck in that job for X amount of years. It's too much. So, but if I do all this stuff today in this, you know, from the time I'm 28 to 38, Mm -hmm. I will have the entire world open to me and I could do whatever I want. And I don't think that that's what most people understand. And it's hard to like, for someone like me, you know, like I'm trained like a certified financial planner and it's very difficult to get human beings whose brains are not long-term, right? We're, we're very we're short-term creatures. It's very difficult to convince somebody, if you do this now, you're going to be so much happier in 10 years. Yeah. But you guys are. And you're proof Absolutely. of that. Tell me a little bit about that community. Where do you see the growth coming from? Is it is it millennials? Is it, are there older people coming in? Are there are there old farts like me coming in? Like, what do you think is happening in that? Yeah, everybody's in, everybody's welcome. Everyone's in the pool. Everybody's yeah. in the pool. It's not it's not a, a, a millennial thing, but I think uh, it's really appealing to millennials in particular because for uh, for the boomer generation, jobs were stable. Jobs, right. You know, I mean, like if you got laid off, you did something horribly wrong and it was <laughs> it was your fault that you yeah. did something bad. Right. Yeah. But for us, we can get laid off at any point. I mean, like we are endlessly pilloried in the media for being disloyal and flaky. And, oh, these millennials just jump from job to job. I don't know the value of hard work It's like we're not doing that on purpose. We're doing that because our jobs disappear after every three or four years. And we have to constantly keep moving Otherwise, we're going to get outsourced or, or the, our, our company is going to go under or something like that. Mm. We don't show any loyalty to our company because we know that there's no loyalty coming back the other way. And this whole fire movement is kind of was a response to the fact that there is no real job stability in our world anymore. So mm. fire is our way of creating income stability. Now, before I let you go, chapter four, don't follow your passion yet. Can you talk a little bit about why you wrote this chapter and what's so important about like this idea of like, oh, follow your passion. What is the downside of doing that? Right. Okay. So the whole idea of just follow your passion blindly, I think that kind of came from the Steve Jobs, um, you know, his Stanford commencement speech. That's like, if you follow your passion, then everything will just work out, right? Anything can go wrong at any point. You have to take care of yourself. Your parents can't be there for you. Um, I learned very early on to choose my career based on something I call the pot score, which is pay over tuition, which is the idea that instead of just going into something because you love it, you actually evaluate whether the amount of money you would get paid over uh, the minimum wage would be worth the amount of money you're spending in tuition. And it's not just about like just Take the job that earns the most amount of money, like be a doctor. Um, When we actually do the analysis in the book, you'll find out that doctors, it's actually not that great in terms of becoming FI because they have to be in school for 10 years and rack up a lot of debt. And then it takes a long time for that to pay back. Originally, I wanted to be, um, you know, novelist, right? And then later I found out that novelists make on average like $5,000 a year and 93% of books sell less than 
a thousand copies, right? So for me, like it was really more of a practical decision um, to make the decision that you shouldn't just blindly follow your passion. Figure out whether the degree is actually worth it. Not all degrees are equal. Right. And at the end of the day, um, you will not be a starving artist. You will have money and you'll have what you love. What do you think is chapter two for you guys what i mean i feel like well let's say chapter three because like you have this 10 years now you're in like high travel book promotion all this what can we expect next from you I think we're quite passionate about, you know, financial education. After the book came out, um, some of my readers have written to me, like, can you, you know, speak at university uh, lecture halls, try to get the book out to as many people as possible to save them from, like, the financial mistakes, right? Because I feel like if you know about financial independence, retire early, as early as possible in university, then you'll be able to understand how investing works. You'll have that long runway in the market, and you won't be able to get into a lot of student debt without realizing that that degree is not worth it. All right, so before we let you go the start of the program we always say like what's your best financial decision it was obviously adopting the fire movement philosophy what was your worst financial decision that each of you made actually jumping out of the market you know just two years after 2008 because at that point we're like okay you know we recovered our money let's go buy a house uh-huh. right so we actually missed out on three years of bull run as a re- as a result of that market timing yeah, yeah exactly. exactly so that's a really you know hard lesson to learn but on the plus side we still managed to become financially independent because we you know ended up saving and not stepping on any of the landmines so one of my favorite things to say to people is that you can really make up for bad investment decisions it's very hard to make up for lack of saving it really is hard like you just you got to be diligent you're listening to jill on money okay it's time for our last segment it's called the marcus minute presented by marcus by goldman sachs short answers and i'm going to let each of you do it so bryce one word to describe your relationship with money freedom christy what's always worth spending on freedom Bryce, what's the dumbest thing you've spent money on? Booze. Christy, how much do you spend on a haircut? 30 bucks. Bryce, whose face would you put on the dollar bill? Christy's. So sweet, the two of them. Christy, it's your last day on earth. You've got 100 bucks in your pocket. What would you do with it? Donate it. You guys are fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. It uh, has been a supreme us. pleasure, truly. This, is, this has been this a lot of fun. Let's awesome. do this again sometime, huh? Thank you so much. Thanks so much to Christy and Bryce. Go check out their book, Quit Like a Millionaire. We drop new episodes of Jill on Money every Tuesday and Thursday. Sometimes we pop in a Friday bonus episode as well. If you'd like to subscribe to the podcast, just go to Apple, Stitcher, Radio.com, Google Play, or anywhere else you find your favorite podcasts. If you've got a financial question, don't forget you can always email us. Ask Jill at JillOnMoney.com. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Talercio is the best executive producer in the entire world. We're distributed by Cadence 13, and the show is presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. See you next week.